I have the privilege of preaching today in Exodus 17. So go ahead and get your Bibles and go there with me. That is our text, Exodus 17. So I'm going to read that chapter. And then I'm going to read uh, Paul's commentary kind of on this chapter and others from this story in Exodus in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 1 through uh, 7. So starting in Exodus chapter 17, this is the word of the Lord. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it. And the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. This is the word of the Lord. We're also going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 7. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. 
That's where we'll stop. So back to Exodus 17. The children of Israel, the congregation comes out of Egypt and we have to remember that this is, this is just weeks after they're coming out of Egypt and they, they uh, move on from the wilderness of sin which is an ironic pun in English, in our English, right? The wilderness of sin, how ironic. And they come to Rephidim. Rephidim means resting places. They come to resting places. They come to Rephidim. But there is no water there. And so the people contend with Moses saying, give us water to drink. And the word translated quarrel or contend there has this, it has this legal connotation. And it's as if, uh, it's as if they were um, pleading a case or a uh, lodging an accusation against Moses, a legal accusation. And so Moses says, uh, why are you quarreling with me? Why, why are you lodging a complaint with me? And he says, why do you test the Lord? Why do you tempt the Lord? So in other words, he's saying, what are you accusing me of? What are you accusing me of? And they, they tell him later, by the way. He says, your complaint is not with me. It's with the Lord. The Lord who led us here. And, he, and, and this is what's all in his voice. He says, are you honestly putting the Lord on trial? Why do you tempt the Lord? But the people kept on grumbling and murmuring against Moses saying, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? This is a complete side note here, but just I want you to make it a note in your head. When, when they're in Egypt and Moses goes to Pharaoh, Moses said, let us go. And Pharaoh says, I'll let the guys go. And Moses says, no, our children go too. Our livestock goes too. And that was, a, that was a sticking point. Pharaoh was ready to let the guys go out. But Moses said, no, our children and our livestock. And so the people complained to Moses, our children and our livestock, you're, you bring us out here to kill us? By the way, the scripture in 1 Corinthians we just read, what does Paul do? He does the same thing. He says, the children and the livestock. Well, he doesn't say the livestock, but he says the children, they all ate and drank right? They all pass through. He makes a point to, to show the children there. So Moses cries to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me, verse 4. And God says, the people want a trial, thy will be done. The people want a trial, let there be a trial. And he commands Moses to take the rod, take the rod of God's judgment, the same rod of judgment that turned water to blood, and pass on before the people. Take the rod of God's judgment and pass on before the people. So we see another Passover, right? Another judgment is passing the Israelites by. The Lord says to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. So Moses is told to pass before the people with some of the elders, which means that the people aren't going to get to witness firsthand this miracle. They're not going to get to see this miracle happen. He, Moses is told to take the elders and pass before the people, and he does it in the sight of the elders. So then verse 6 says something incredible. It, it, it says something that is unthinkable, heresy if it wasn't true. Jehovah says, God says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. 
the amazing thing, by the way, is not that water comes from a rock. That's incredible. But the amazing thing is that God says, I will stand before you. God puts himself on the witness stand, so to speak. God doesn't stand before men. You see, God doesn't stand before men. We stand before God. But God says to Moses, I will stand before you there on the rock. And so we see God, he willingly takes the place of the accused. He stands up on the rock. And then God commands Moses to strike the rock. And what does that imply? What does that mean? It means that the rod of God's judgment would come down on God himself. The God on the rock. The rock that Paul identified in 1 Corinthians 10, the passage we read from the New Testament, as who? Christ. They drank from the rock in the wilderness. That rock was Christ. And so we see Moses, God commanding Moses to strike God as he puts himself in the place of the accused. Now, throughout the scriptures, God is identified as the rock. In, Mo, in, a, in Deuteronomy 32, what we call the Song of Moses, there's all of these rock references. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. In 32, 15, he says, but Jeshurun forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. Deuteronomy 32, 18, you were unfair unmindful of the rock that, bef- that bore you and you forgot the God who gave you birth. Deuteronomy 32, 31, for their rock is not as our rock, our enemies are by themselves. And then in the Psalms, we see this also. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. Psalm 18, 2. Psalm 78, 35 says, they remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their Redeemer. Psalm 95, 1, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. In Isaiah, he says, trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock, in, verse, in chapter 26, verse 4. And then twice in the New Testament, in Romans 9, 33, and in 1 Peter 2, 8, Christ is referred to as the rock of offense. The rock of offense. And so the story in Exodus 17 is clearly, clearly pointing us to Christ, who in time would again be tested in another wilderness, right? Christ, who would again go out into a wilderness and be tested. It's pointing us to the one who John the Apostle made a specific point to tell us that when that rock of offense was smitten, when he was struck, we sang about it this morning, what happened? Blood and water flowed from that rock of offense. John makes the specific point to tell us in his gospel in 1934, John 1934. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that these things took place for us as examples They are for us to be examples that we might not desire evil as they did. That we would not be idolaters as some of them were. That we might, uh, uh, so we gotta ask ourselves then when we look at that, what Paul says, this is for uh, our example that we might not desire evil, that we might not be idolaters. We have to ask ourselves, well, how did these people who were led by God 
from Egypt and repeatedly shown his awesome power, right? Repeatedly shown his awesome power. How did they come to desire evil? How were they idolaters? How did they put Christ to the test? We're going to come back to that uh, in a bit. But before we do that, let's go ahead and go on and look at... uh, Look briefly at the other event recorded in Exodus chapter 17, the battle with Amalek. So again, Israel's on their way from Egypt. We're weeks out. I mean, we're weeks out. Last week in chapter 16, we see that it was exactly a month after, right? So they're on their way out of Egypt. And um, here comes Amalek while they are in Rephidim, while they are in their resting places. Here comes the enemy, Amalek, and he comes to oppose Israel. Amalek means dweller in the valley, and the fighting is probably taking place in a valley because we are told that Moses stands up on the hill overlooking the battle. The rod of God is again central to this event in Exodus 17. And so, In order for the Israelites to have victory, Moses has to keep his hands outstretched on the rod. On the rod of God's judgment. Upon the tree, you could say. This is not not a magic trick. You know, this is not a magic trick. This is not some sleight of hand superstition. This is another forward look to who? To Jesus. This is another forward look to the Messiah, the Savior of Israel, the Savior of the world. The Lord of glory who would be lifted up, right? This is a forward look to the Lord of glory who, John says again, would be lifted up with arms outstretched upon the tree of God's judgment in order to win for his people the victory, right? Christ in Exodus 17. He's all over. There's another forward look. And so at the end of the battle, the Israelites triumph and God promises to utterly blot out even the remembrance of Amalek, this enemy of God's children from under heaven. Moses builds this altar and he names it Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is my banner. The Lord is my flag. He is my standard which I fight under, right? He is my banner. So many years later, God, in keeping his promise, he tells King Saul. So King Saul comes much later, but he tells King Saul, because God is the God who keeps his promises. He tells King Saul, go up and utterly destroy the Amalekites. In fact, you hear this often referred to by people who hate God. Well, God, he could just utterly destroy the Amalekites. Yes, he did, and he commanded it. God tells Saul, go up and utterly destroy the Amalekites, the men, the women, the infants, the sucklings, the oxen, the sheep, the camels, the asses. But Saul, acting as if he knew better than God, spares the king and the best of the livestock, only destroying the animals considered what the King James says calls vile and refuse. So King Saul says, I think I might know better than God. I'm going to spare the king and I'm going to spare the good animals. And so Samuel, who is God's prophet at the time of King Saul there, God's prophet comes and he says this to Saul. 
He says this in 1 Samuel 15, 22 and 23. He says, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice because Saul's excuse, Saul's excuse was, well, Samuel, we're gonna sacrifice all these good animals to God. And Samuel says, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen than the fat of rams. And he says this, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption or stubbornness as iniquity and idolatry. Presumption as idolatry. Stubbornness as idolatry. So what we see play out over and over again, even from the beginning in the garden, okay? You can go back to the beginning in the garden with Adam and Eve and we see this playing out over and over again. Is God's covenant people constantly falling into this stubborn pride in which we functionally begin to believe that we know better than God. I say functionally because we would never say it that way. I would be willing to bet that nobody in this room would ever say in their worst of times, I know better than God right now. Nobody's gonna put it that way, but this is how we function. This is what we functionally do and say. I know better than God. That's why I'm worrying because my life's not going the way that I know it's supposed to go. I know better than God. God leads his people like a shepherd leading his sheep to resting places, to Rephidim, to their resting place. And what do we say? I say the same thing you say. This is what we say. We need water right this very moment. Right this very moment or we will die. We need water right this very moment or we will die. And, we, and, and what we do is when our every beck and call, our every demand, before the words even finish coming out of our mouth, when they are not answered immediately, what do we do? We begin to doubt God's promise. Here we are in Rephidim, in the resting place, where the cloud, by the way, they're being led by a cloud, Literally, God is leading them, like, actually follow the cloud. And they come to the resting place and they say, we need water right this very moment or we will die. What did you bring us out here for, to die? I mean, how silly. We immediately, when our beck and call is not answered, we begin to doubt God's promise. We functionally replace his promise with our doubt. That's what we do. We reject his wise and fatherly timelines and rhythms and seasons and decrees. I don't like winter, give me summer. Summer comes, I don't like summer, cool it off a bit. And the cycle continues, right? We reject his timelines, his rhythms of life, his seasons, his decrees, his paths for us. And we um, substitute that, we reject and we say, uh, I'll take my foolish and my immature demand. I'll take my foolish and my immature assumption about how the world is supposed to work right now, how my story is supposed to be told, God. This is my story and this is the way it's supposed to go. Don't you know? What are we doing? God, I know better than you. I know better than you. That's why I'm worried because things are not right in the world and I know better than you. This is why Jesus told us, be anxious for nothing. 
This is idolatry in its most basic form. This is idolatry. You know, we think of idolatry because we're so um, educated and civilized. We think of idolatry as like those country bumpkins who carve statues out of wood and, and bow down to them. And we say, we would never do something like that. No, we don't do something like that. You're right, we don't do that. We, we do something even worse. We start to worship our own ideas and ourselves, our own opinions. That's what we do. We, um, we are the director. We want to be the director of our own movie that we happen to star in, right? We want to be the author of our own story in which we are, without exception, the perfect protagonist. Perfect. We want to tell the story the way we want to tell the story. We want to be our author and the star. We want to be our own gods, and so we reject the one true living God. That is idolatry. Now, like I said, it's true that most of us in this room would never, ever want to put it that way, right? How many of you are idolaters? We're not going to be like, yeah, that's my struggle with sin. I'm an idolater. Because we don't want to think about it that way. Or maybe we just don't think about it that way. Or maybe we just say something like, well, we don't want to call it that because that sounds serious. So what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? We, we do this. We say, we say things like, you know, I've really just been struggling lately with worry, anxiety, guilt, fear, depression, this bad habit, it's a bad habit because of course it's not a sin, it's just a bad habit, right? You, you mean, you know, it's just a bad habit. I just snap at my kids, you know, three or four times a week. It's just a bad habit. This is what we do. We, we, down, we sugarcoat it, we downplay it because we don't want to call it idolatry because that sounds way too serious, right? Way too serious. But how were they idolaters? How were they idolaters? How did they put Christ to the test? How were they... <laughs> Uh, struggling with idolatry. Well, we see later on, they actually do build a golden calf and they worship it. And Paul references that in 1 Corinthians 2. But where did their idolatry begin and how did they get to that point? They grumbled. They complained. They murmured. What is, what is that? What is that? That is them saying, that's us saying, I know better than you, God. Give me water now or we die. Listen, nothing is wrong with struggling. Nothing's wrong with struggling, but here's the problem. And if we're honest with ourselves, this is what we can admit about ourselves. If we're honest, many of the, many of the things that we say we're struggling with, we're not actually struggling with them, are we? We're coddling them. We're letting them grow. We're protecting them really carefully, right? We're not struggling with our anxiety. We're, f we're fostering it in our heart. And then we look at ourselves as the victims to our worry and our anxiety. And what did we read? What did our children's story talk about? Well, I mean, what does Jesus tell us? Cast your cares upon him, right? We're coddling our, our sin. We're guarding our sin. We're fostering our sin. We're not actually trying to struggle with it. John Owen famously says, you must be killing sin or it will be killing you. There's no neutrality there. You can't call a truce with it. You can't live peaceably with it. You either have to kill it or it will kill you. All too often, this is what we do. All too often, we reverently serve our own evil desires and like good little self-worshippers, we gladly, we will gladly cut down and stone anyone who opposes or offends our little gods. 
right? The guy in front of you who's driving too slow because you're late for work. Why? Because you are late for work and he's driving too slow. And so you finally get past him and you go past him and what do you do? You give him the look that says, you have offended the gods, right? You have offended the gods. Our worlds revolve around us if we're not careful. This is what we tend to functionally believe. And so we are good little worshipers. We're very reverent little self-worshipers. And we will, like I said, cut down and oppose anybody who gets, who opposes, who offends our God. We worship our own opinions. We worship our worries, our pet sins. Remember those things that we want to just kind of classify as bad habits? No, those are sins. Those are pet sins that you need to mortify. You say, well, the Bible doesn't call it a sin. Well, it's a sin for you, okay? It's a sin, and you need to mortify it. You need to kill it or it will kill you. And in the end, though, this is what we have to remember. In the end, that religion of pathetic gods is a rat race. It is a rat race. You know, kids, you know what a rat race is? You probably have never seen it because we just, a lot of people don't have gerbils and rats anymore for pets, but you see them running on a little wheel. They just run as fast as they can, but do they ever get anywhere? No, they just are spinning their wheels. It's a rat race. It will get us nowhere. It will leave us nowhere but thirsty and defeated. That's where our religion of self-worship will leave us, thirsty and defeated. And so you see these thirsty, unbelieving Israelites, they made it to Rephidim. They made it to Rephidim. They made it to their resting place but they hadn't made it to their true resting place, right? They made it to Rephidim. City limits, here we are, Rephidim. But they had not made it to their true resting place. So the question this morning is, have you? Have you? When our God is God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, Christian, what do you believe, right? God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Our worship of that God will reflect, it will naturally be a reflection of him, of light, of joy, of holiness, of peace, of righteousness, of truth, of love. When that is the God we worship, that is the light that we are gonna reflect. On the other hand, when, you're con- when you are content to keep returning to your pet sins and you're content to worry or be anxious or bitter or be bitter or grumble and complain, when you're content to blame others, what do you think that says about the God you are worshiping? What does it say about the God you're worshiping? Is that God maker of heaven and earth, God almighty maker of heaven and earth? No. Why in the world do you worry when your God is the maker of heaven and earth? Yeah, but he doesn't know that I'm hungry today. He doesn't? You don't think he knows that you need to eat today? He wrote, the sun came up the the same way it has every other day, but you think today is gonna be the day that he forgets about your need. That's what we do. I mean, it sounds silly when you put it that way, doesn't it? But that's what we do. So when we do all those things, worry, anxious, bitter, grumble, complain, blame others, what is that saying about the God we're worshiping? That is idolatry, beloved. That is idolatry. 
So again, I ask you, have you made it to the true resting place? There's an interesting connection. As I was studying this passage, there's this interesting connection with John chapter 5. With a lame man by a pool named Bethesda. And Bethesda, this pool of Bethesda, Bethesda means flowing water. But this is the, the funny thing about this pool is that um, it's still. It's not flowing. It's not stirring. It's still water. But this is the magic about it. You know, I'm going to call it magic because it's just this miraculous thing. It happens. When the pool would be stirred up, whoever's the first one in is healed, gets their healing. So what would happen is these lame people would camp out around this pool and the, when the waters are stirred, they would first one in gets healed, okay? So here Jesus is, that comes with this, uh, to this lame man by a pool of Bethesda, this flowing water, the pool is still. And so the lame man is waiting in a bed by the pool. He's waiting in a bed for the resting waters to be stirred up, to flow. And if, and if he's the first one in, he's going to get his healing. He will receive his rest. And so enter Jesus now. Jesus comes. He comes on the day of rest. He comes on the day of rest. He comes on the Sabbath to the resting waters, to the lame man laying in a bed, and what does he do? He does a work. He does a work to give that man true rest. You're healed. And then once that man has found true rest, do you know what Jesus tells him? He says, get up, take up your bed and walk. He says, welcome to rest. Now get up and go. Welcome to rest. Get up and go. Walk. Now, they wanted to kill Jesus because he broke the Sabbath. He did a work, and it's the day of rest. They failed to see that what he did was the perfect picture of our Sabbath, of true rest, right? He says, get up, take up your bed and walk. But it's the Sabbath. You're, you have entered into your true rest, he says. There's another interesting connection. If you go back one chapter to John chapter four with the woman at the well. See, when you get to Jesus, the rock, and water from the rock, you gotta think, where's the connection with Jesus and water and the rock and, and rest and all this stuff? And so there's this connection in John chapter four with the woman at the well. The woman at the well, Jesus asks her for a drink and, and tells her if she knew who he was, she would be asking him for a drink and that he would have given her living water, he says. And so she says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She says, I'm tired of lugging this pot around, pulling up this water, coming out, out of town to the well. Give me this water so I don't, I'll find rest from my work, Right? She wants rest from her labors, from her dead and striving. We see her dead and striving. Her, her labors go a lot deeper than just coming out and getting rest. We see that, right? You know, this woman had all these husbands, but still the one she's with isn't, isn't her husband. And so she's just this striving rat. She's in the rat race. And so 
she says, you know, give me, give me that water, you know. You know what she does next? She gets the water. You know what she does after she receives that? She leaves her pot by the well and she makes the trip back to town. And she says, guys, people, listen. You've got to come with me. And what do they do? They listen to her and they come with her and they say, this man, this man, something about this man, you've got to come with me. And she, makes, she leaves her pot by the well. She makes a trip back to town, gets the people and she comes back. She brings a bunch more empty pots back to the well. And even as she's coming back, she makes another trip back to the well, even as Jesus is telling his disciples that he is accomplishing his father's work. They say, do you want some food? I already have food. Where did you get food? Who gave him food? I am doing my father's work, he says. And he calls them to do what? What does he do? He says, enter into the labor of another, right? The harvest is plentiful, Come, reap what you didn't sow. Come on, enter into the labor of another. This is true rest. So Philippians 2, 12 through 13, Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. Christian, work because it is God who works in you. So we can strive by our own strength. We can make whoever or whatever the object of our quarreling and our murmuring. We can remain stubbornly insistent that we get what we want when we want it. But in the end, that will get us nowhere but at odds with what and who we would truly seek. Rest. You see, we could keep on struggling. We can keep on striving in our own strength. We can keep on murmuring, complaining, quarreling. We can do that, but in the end, it's just a rat race, and it will leave you missing the one thing you're looking for. Rest. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Bible tells us that God tested his people at the waters of Meribah. Okay? While the Bible also tells us that God was put to the test there. Psalm 95 tells us that. Uh, and the chapter, Exodus 17, tells us that, that God was put to the test there. And yet, how is this not a contradiction? How is that not a contradiction? Because the good news is true. Because the gospel is true. Because it is from the judgment that God renders, that God dishes out, and it is from the judgment that he receives in himself that we 
receive water. When God dishes out the judgment and God is the one who takes that judgment as the accused, we receive water. We receive rest. Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and with his stripes we are healed. Romans 3, 23 through 26 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Here's the line. Here's the, here's the takeaway. So that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is the judge forever. And he is the one, the accused, who takes the judgment. This is the gospel. The rock of salvation is a rock that was smitten. Christ, the son of God, became a man. He went to the cross, not to bear our wrath and scorn, but he did. He did bear our wrath and scorn, but that's not why he went to the cross. And that's not what he was freaked out about. He went to the cross, not to bear our wrath and scorn. He went to the cross to become our sin sacrifice in order to bear the wrath and scorn of God. Smitten of God. In that moment on the cross, Christ, who, who became accursed for our sin, as Paul says in Galatians, was forsaken by the Father. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. He says this, Jesus had no impurity. Until that moment that our sin was placed upon him and the one who was pure was pure no more and God cursed him. It was as if there was a cry from heaven as if Jesus heard the words, God damn you. Because that's what is meant to be cursed of the Father. Jesus became a curse for us. He hung on the cross and what did he say? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God did not need to prove anything to us. He did not need to prove anything to his people. We, days, weeks prior, God, uh, to the water coming from this rock, God has displayed his sovereign power over creation and over the human heart in the plagues of Egypt. He delivered them from their bondage from a hard-hearted Pharaoh. He had parted the Red Sea before them such that water stood like walls on each side and they passed on dry land and that water became a deadly deluge to their Egyptian enemies. Their faithful redeemer had just made bitter waters sweet. He rained bread from heaven. His faithfulness was tried and true and abundantly clear. And yet these unbelieving covenant people put God to the test. And yet, and yet in another display of his faithfulness, he shows them mercy. Even for the sake of the next generation. 
His judgment passes by them again and Christ the rock is smitten. How are you going to guard against evil desires and idolatry? How are you going to guard against evil desires and idolatry? Hebrews chapter four, verse 14 through 16 says this. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into heavens, into the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. How are you going to guard against evil desires? How are you going to guard against idolatry? See Jesus. See the rock that was tested and proved faithful who provides living water for you. He provides living water where and when true rest seems impossible. Right? Oh, you Christians, you just seem to be so at peace. See Jehovah, the victorious banner that is lifted up to put your enemies down, to raise you up Why your enemies, by the way? Why not God's enemies? Because he raises you up in Christ. Because Christ identifies with man and we are now in Christ. And so your enemies are put down by God because God's enemies are put down. He raises you up alongside of him in glorious victory. See Jesus, church. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, now, let's prepare and come to the Lord's table. If you remember back to the very first passage that we read in in Corinthians, um, in Corinthians 10, Paul points out that they all ate and drank from Christ, right? He is talking, especially in the context of this this table. And he says, they all drank and, and ate of Christ, and yet God was not pleased with many of them. In the following chapter, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul exhorts and warns the church regarding communion, and he tells them that whoever eats or drinks in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And he says, you are to examine yourselves before you participate in order that you will rightly discern the body. Okay? Now, this passage is commonly used to keep children away from the table because it is believed that they cannot rightly examine themselves and they cannot rightly discern the body. And yet we know that out of the congregation that ate and drank of Christ in the wilderness, it most definitely was not the children who were in danger of failing to have faith, of failing to discern the body. In fact, we are told explicitly that those guys who ate and drank from that rock, many of them, God was not pleased with them, and that generation died in the wilderness, saved two people, two people. Guess who got to come in? The children. The younger generation came in, right? So it wasn't the kids who were in danger here, and this is, of course, um, 
at our church, we, we baptize, we encourage parents to baptize their children, and so we welcome all who are baptized, no matter how young, to come to this table, to come to Jesus Christ, to come to our rock. And so this reminds us of what Jesus said when his disciples tried to keep the children away. He said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. And so listen up, grown-ups. Listen up, those of us who have grown a little older than these little ones. Listen up. He says this. Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So Christians, children, come and welcome to Jesus. Come to the table. Your charge is this. Each week we profess the Apostles' Creed. Right now we're going through the Apostles' Creed, and so we profess the Apostles' Creed. John Piper rightly points out that the devil and his demons can recite it all honestly and probably better than some of us, maybe most of us, I don't know, save for two of the most crucial words in the entire creed, the two most crucial words in the entire creed, our Lord, our Lord. So in our service, we have a very brief, probably a too brief point um, where we are invited and exhorted to confess our sins silently before the Lord. However, some of you, this is the charge, some of you probably need to actually out loud, face to face, confess your sins to one another. I, I was showing my wife what all I had. And she said, don't you think at that point you should say some of us? I said, this is the spanking that I got when I was writing this. If I haven't confessed and done this before I get to this point in the service, I'm, I've got a bigger problem. And so this is my exhortation to you now, as I have been exhorted. Some of you need to confess your sins out loud, face to face with one another, not just silently during our service, Okay. Some of you need to seek reconciliation for broken relationships. Some of you need to seek forgiveness. Some of you need to offer forgiveness. Some of you need to confess secret sins that, that, um, that you cannot seem to shake free from because up to this point, maybe you've been trying more, uh, uh, more diligently to keep those things hidden rather than bring them out to the light. Some of you need to repent of your worrying, your anxiety, your guilt, and to cheerfully worship God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. That you don't desire evil, that you don't become an idolater. Worship the Lord, worship God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, the author of your story, the director of your movie. <laughs> So as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I charge you, if the rock is your Lord, act like it. If the rock is your Lord, act like it. Hold fast to your profession. Today, if you hear my voice, do not harden your hearts. Believe your God, enter his rest, and get to work. Believe your God, enter his rest, and get to work. So the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Let's sing our thanks to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. 
Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Go in the grace and the peace of the Lord. Amen.